Well, again, I am Mark Hunt, and it's um, my pleasure to be with you today and to bring the word to Redeemer. I'm here with my family, Megan, my wife, and my kids, Andrew, Benjamin, and Rebecca, and we're, um, we've enjoyed, in a time of transition, worshiping at Redeemer um, a few times over the last few um, weeks and months, and so I've enjoyed a friendship with Craig over the years, and um, he was a uh, he uh, was kind to, to give me this opportunity, and we've admired Redeemer from afar over the years, and so it's been good to get a little more of a firsthand experience with your congregation. Um, I, as, uh, as was said, I, I have served, church, uh, served most recently the Rockville Presbyterian Church here on Wadmall Island in Charleston County, but um, that, has, uh, that call has ended, and we're kind of waiting for what God has in store for us at this time. Um, today, as we uh, look to God's Word, I'll be preaching from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 53. I'd invite you to um, call that up in your Bible and look along with me. This entire chapter is a chapter of parables, which are simple and short stories that Jesus told to his hearers to make a spiritual point or to give a spiritual lesson. And so we're going to look at a trio of parables in our reading today, um, primarily looking at two of them, and these parables are about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so we'll be looking at that as we, uh, as we look into the scriptures today. So I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, It was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind, and when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the goods into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers, they do fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father God, through your written word, And by the spoken word, may we now know your true and living word. And by Jesus' prayers and work for us through his spirit, may he press deeply these teachings into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the last time we worshipped here a few weeks back was the weekend of the, of the evacuation for Hurricane Irma. 
and Craig preached about the um, focusing on things that are eternal and not just not just um, that we see in the news or that impact us now, although those do um, those do affect our lives. And one of the um, one of the images that stuck with me as as so so much news coverage covered the the hurricane. And thank goodness that, or thank the Lord that we're here today. And there's not been a what a Jose or a Maria to come to Charleston. But um, one of the images um, in the preparation of the storm were the long lines around big box stores, around Costco, or around Lowe's, or around Home Depot, as people made their final preparations for the incoming storm. And as I thought about that, I thought about, um, I, I, like, I like little factual tidbits, and so I wondered, how many big box stores are there? And so I want to play a game. Did you know? Did you know that there are 2,274 Home Depot stores in North America? And did you know that there are 1,840 Lowe's home improvement stores in North America? And that's who I think of when I think of everything from preparing for the storm to home improvement projects to something broke and we need to fix it. But it turns out those guys are small potatoes. Because did you know? that there are over 4,800 Ace Hardware stores around the world. And the biggest, with over 5,000 stores in over 60 countries, is True Value. True Value. True Value and Ace Hardware stores, it turns out they're kind of like the McDonald's and Burger Kings of the hardware world. They're locally owner-operated franchises, and there are more of those than any of the big box stores, although that may be who we think of when we have an improvement project at home. Now, that name, that last one, True Value, that kind of sticks with me, and it makes me think, what is the true value of anything? And how do you determine any item's real worth? 99% of the items at any hardware store are really worthless to me because I don't need them right now. It doesn't matter what their price is. However, if, um, if, you, know, if, if you are a homeowner or have um, to-do lists for properties you may own, you get it. If it's just a few PVC parts to finish a plumbing project or a few pieces of lumber uh, to finish um, some particular need in your home, then whatever those values, whatever those, those items are, their value skyrockets when you need them. If that's what you need, then they are of great value to you, whatever they may be. And all of this becomes extremely important when we begin to think about our spiritual lives. And when we begin to think about how much we value the kingdom of God, because how much we value the kingdom of God will determine what we are willing to give up for it. Now, today's passage, it it ends, as I said, a particular set of parables. And I believe these parables today will challenge us and will comfort us and will confront us and will encourage us as we wrestle with what is the value of the kingdom of God to us. So to dig in for a moment, Jesus uses two parables, particularly to teach about the kingdom of God. The first is about a man who finds a treasure in a field, and then he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy that field. 
and thereby have the treasure. Now, some people have argued about this passage. I think it's a wrong argument, but they've argued that, that it's a little bit dishonest, right? The man found this treasure. The field wasn't his. The treasure really wasn't his. Um, shouldn't he have told the landowner what was there? But of course, um, the law of the land really defines theft as taking something that's not yours, and he didn't really take anything that wasn't his. It wasn't until the land had been purchased and the title was transferred into his name that the treasure truly became his. Once the land belonged to him, anything on it was his. There, there's no treachery here. And, and in fact, sometimes we can get so focused on the, the trees, the details in these passages, that we miss the bigger picture, that this passage is designed to teach us something bigger. Now, there are parallels in the modern world to um, this kind of to parable, because certainly people have spent fortunes in investigating what may be under, under the ground on some particular parcel of land because they're looking for natural resources or oil or other things. And I, I read a story about a, a pastor, in fact, who had bought a piece of land, and someone was investigating land adjacent to it and had found some coal resources under the ground. And so he spoke to the pastor about wanting to investigate on his piece of land if there were was coal under the ground, and so the pastor allowed this, and in fact, there was some coal under the ground, but the man told him it was only a few inches deep, and it was a small deposit. Eventually, the pastor sold the land, only to be surprised when a few weeks later, an enormous coal mining operation popped up on that piece of property, and there, there indeed was coal on the land, but it wasn't just a little bit, it was a huge amount. The second parable today is about a merchant, and it's a a pearl merchant, a merchant who is looking for pearls, and he finds one that is just perfect. Now, remember, this was an era when there were no fake pearls, there was no fake jewelry, there were no manufactured gems, and so he knows that this particular pearl is a one of a kind. It is perfect. And pearls were greatly prized in the ancient world. In fact, in the Revelation to John, the New Jerusalem is described, and the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, and each gate is described as having been carved out of a single pearl. So this pearl seller, this pearl merchant, he knows what he has found. And so he sells everything that he has in order that he can buy this pearl of great price. Now, Jesus probably told these two parables, which sort of go together as a couplet. He probably told them they're similar, but a little bit different, because he knew that different people might be captivated by one or the other of them. And while they are very similar, the main difference in these two parables is that the the man who finds the treasure in the field, he's not described as having been necessarily looking for a treasure or have been a treasure hunter all his life, but he just stumbles upon a treasure in this field. While on the other hand, the pearl merchant has been buying and selling pearls his whole life. He has been on the quest to find that perfect pearl, that pearl of great value, and here he has found it. And beloved, I would say such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has people in it who have longed and searched for faith, and hope, and God, and in that search, they found Jesus. 
And the kingdom of God also has people in it who have not so much been on a quest for God or a quest for faith. But by God's will, the treasure has found them. And the kingdom of God has all sorts of people in it. People who came running to God and people who may have come in running from God. But the hound of heaven has tracked them down. And the kingdom's big enough for people who truly understand the value of the kingdom and for people who have just caught a glimmer of its true worth. But the kingdom is big enough to give all to be a part of it. So, having said that, I've got a couple of, um, couple of big thoughts for today as we think about these passages, as we consider parables. And the first big thought is this, that these parables challenge us if our view of the kingdom of God is too small. These parables challenge us if our view of the kingdom of God is too small. And I would say, for many, our view of the kingdom is too small. Most of us don't value Jesus Christ and His kingdom. The preacher Matthew Henry wrote, Many look only upon the surface of the field, and they judge it by that, right? We, we tend to judge like the book by its cover, if you will. Henry wrote that we judge the surface of the field only. And at a glance, he says, you might see no significant difference between Christ and the other philosophers or Christ and the other religious leaders. But he goes on to say that those who have searched the Scriptures so as in them to find Christ and eternal life have discovered such a treasure in this field as makes it infinitely more valuable. Now, my wife and I, we don't watch a lot of um, broadcast TV or live TV, but we, we do like to watch the Netflix shows, and some of y'all may do that as well. And we just last week, we discovered a new sitcom, and it sort of, sort of said, this will preach. This new sitcom is called The Good Place. We watched a few episodes. I think it's in its second season now. The Good Place. And The Good Place is uh, about uh, the character named Eleanor who wakes up in The Good Place to find that she is dead. She's been hit by a truck. And instead of heaven or hell, it's called The Good Place. And in, in, um, the afterlife is The Good Place or The Bad Place Where You Go. And so she's in The Good Place. And The Good Place is described as um, a place where everyone's friendly, where there's plenty of frozen yogurt, there's tons of sun. There's a lovely guide to meet, uh, answer any question or meet any need. Um, you can drink and never have a hangover. But there's only one problem. She discovers she's not supposed to be there. Um, but it's kind of, a, kind of an amusing show, and we've enjoyed watching a few episodes. But it gives us a picture from the popular culture about what the afterlife is like. That it's a slightly better version of our life now, right? There's plenty of frozen yogurt. It's always sunny. There's no storms. Nobody cusses, and you don't get hangovers. Is this the best we can come up with for a version of the afterlife? And in case we think Hollywood is the only one that gets it wrong, right? It's easy to pick on Hollywood. I mean, there's a lot of unbiblical things that Christians believe about the afterlife, you know, and just to pick on um, one, one notion, you know, that, that in the afterlife we're like um, baby angels playing harps, floating around on clouds all day. I don't know that there's a great biblical warrant for this belief either. So, so in other words, even though the, uh, the Bible doesn't go into great detail about what all is going to happen in the kingdom of God, um, we can know that 
it is described as having no more death, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sickness. We know from the Scriptures that there is pure joy in the presence of God and with His people. Um, The new Jerusalem will be beyond imagining. We will not be able to fathom it until we are there. And so what what we know from these parables is that the kingdom of God is a treasure beyond treasures. It is a pearl beyond pearls. Is it the good place? Oh, yeah. It's a good place, but it's beyond description. It is more holy than anything we could ever conceive. It is more amazing and more incredible than anything we could dream because it is the dwelling place of the holy God. A holy God who desires to dwell with us, to live with us. And heaven is not good because it's heaven, but heaven is good because God is there in His unadulterated glory. And beloved, if we are willing to search out the Scriptures, to find out who God is and what He is like and what He has done, we will realize that spending our eternity in His presence is worth every effort and every cost and every sacrifice. And when you study God, you'll find that He's not like us. He is holy. His judgment is always perfect. His grace is beyond measure. His power is unfathomable. And He uses it for our good. He condescends Himself to come to us and live as one of us to love us and to save us. He is our treasure, and He is our pearl. And the millions upon millions of people who have given their lives in pursuit of Him have known this, and we can know it too. Because of having the right view of the kingdom of God is, is, is giving ourselves, and giving ourselves up for it um, becomes really, really nothing to us when we realize how much more we will receive in return. So, um, one last thing to note here on this first big thought is just to say that these parables don't in any way change the fact that salvation is a free gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in scriptures for God's glory. It doesn't change that in any way. Um, this leads me to my, my second big thought. So, the first is that our view of the kingdom of God is challenged if it's too small by these parables. The second is that these parables comfort us because we are not asked in these parables to do anything that Jesus has not already done for us. We're not asked to do anything that he's not already done for us. And so that should be a comfort to us because sometimes when we hear parables like this, they sound rather extreme. I mean, the man in the field and the pearl merchant, they sell everything they have to buy one thing. And does that mean that we're to go through the rest of our lives broke and homeless? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that's the point of the parable because you can sell everything you have and still not, and still not gain the kingdom. The point is that when we recognize the kingdom of God for what it is, we, will, we would joyfully give up everything, every treasure, in order to gain that kingdom. Um, we would give up everything that stands in the way. Our old lives, before we understood the kingdom, will be old and gone and dead, and the new life will begin. And the hard part of that is having that estate sale where we got to get rid of all the junk of our old life. 
um, that might get in the way of pursuing God's kingdom. As, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, setting our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, does that seem like a sacrifice? Yes, it does. It is. And it's not easy because we live in this world and we need things of this world to live in it day by day and to be a part of it. And so there's a balancing act that goes on, sort of the tension between living in this world but, but knowing that our, our true home, our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And, and so to live in this world while at the same time being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, there, there's a balance there. Um, but Jesus asks nothing of us that he's not already done for us. And at a deeper glance, we, we find that maybe, maybe pursuing the kingdom of God is not so much about finding God, but maybe it's about God finding us. Maybe it's about discovering that we are his treasure Malachi 3.17 speaks about those who fear the Lord and honor his name, saying, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And in Deuteronomy 26 and Psalm 135, God calls Israel his treasured possession. And as the adopted children of the true Israel We are in that group as we trust Jesus with our lives. And so for the Lord to claim his treasure, to claim us, Jesus gave everything. He spared nothing. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 through 8 about Jesus being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He did this for you, and he did this for me. Why? To bring glory to his Father. Why? To save us from eternal death and to usher us into the kingdom of God. Now, we're a couple of weeks now into football season, and so some of you may like that, and some of you may be watching games, and as you're watching games this season, you may hear a commentator say something like this about a star player in a game. They may say something like, this player, he left nothing on the field, right? You ever heard that? Yeah, he left nothing on the field. I mean, that's just a little little tiny picture of Jesus Every last thing that he had, he gave up for us that we could be sons and daughters of the Most High God who would spend eternity by his side. He left nothing on the field. And beloved, when you were discouraged or when you were troubled or when you were concerned that you can't do it, that it's too much to to forsake this world for the next, be reassured that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Be reassured that Jesus has left his counselor, his comforter, to guide you and to help you. As Jesus said in John 14, 12, his promise that anyone who has faith in me will do whatever I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. 
And because he's going to the Father, he's sending the Spirit to his church. So, so these parables challenge us. When our, when our picture of the kingdom of God is too small, these parables comfort us when we realize that we're not being asked to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done on our behalf. And finally, these parables encourage us to stop playing around at being disciples and to invest into God's kingdom. In verse 47, we get the parable of the net. So we're not spending much time on that. But, but I believe the reason that Jesus gave us this parable of the net was to underline the seriousness of pursuing the kingdom of God, to highlight the seriousness of pursuing his kingdom. You know, if the difference between being a good fish or a bad fish, if the difference between winding up in glory or winding up in hell is whether we are pursuing the kingdom and following Jesus faithfully or not, then we better make sure nothing's getting in the way of that. We better not be playing around with discipleship. We better not just be playing at being the church. And to be frank, I'm, well, I'm Mark. No. Um, I'm not picking on anybody here, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here when I preach. I preach to myself more than anybody else. But, but in the American church, I think oftentimes we're not that serious about pursuing discipleship, about pursuing God's kingdom. We spend an hour or two on Sundays at church. Maybe we go to a Bible, Bible study during the week. But most of the, most, much of the church is not that serious about being Jesus' disciples. You know, it's one slice in the pie of all the stuff we have in life. I guess one way to think about that is with relationships. We can have a great relationship with somebody, but if we don't continue to invest into that relationship, it may have been the most significant relationship we've ever had, but if we don't continue to invest energy into that relationship, it will cool. It will grow distant. It's kind of a relational entropy, like if I have a hot cup of coffee and I set it here and do nothing else to it, it will become a cold cup of coffee. The same thing can happen with relationships with each other and with our relationship with the Lord if we don't take it seriously. Um, let me read you a part of an address by a, a philosopher. His name was Aristotles. He, may, he, he was a Greek philosopher, and he became a believer in Jesus. And in the year 125, he made an address to the emperor Hadrian and and he described Christians as he saw them. And it really sort of profoundly impacts me as I read these words. He says, if one of them, Christians, if one of them has servants, through love toward them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. He who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. If they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity, and if possible, if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Now, I would note, these are examples 
these are ideas of how Christians follow Jesus and love one another. They're not hard and fast rules. They're not laws. But I read that and I think about myself. When did I fast two or three days to give food to the hungry? When did I open my door to a refugee kicked out of their country for faith in Christ? When did I live in this radical way? And I have to think, am I taking my discipleship seriously? Am I playing at doing church? What would happen? What would happen if in the American church we stopped playing at being disciples and we just decided to be disciples? What kind of amazing changes might we see? What kind of people might we see repent and place their trust in Jesus? And like I said, I'm I'm not accusing anybody here. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. And only God knows our hearts. God alone is Lord of the conscience. But if any of us here today has been a casual Christian, then it's time to get serious because there's so much at stake. There's too much at stake. And unlike some Christians today, we know that we're not in pursuit of some prayer incantation that would save us or some magic fix that will solve our problems, we are in pursuit of Jesus Christ and Him alone and His kingdom. We are pursuing the very kingdom of God. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll leave you with this, um, this description that has meant a lot to me. It's from Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel book. And he says, Perhaps we are all in the position of the man who came to the edge of an abyss. And as he stood there wondering what to do next, he was amazed to discover a tight rope stretched across the abyss. And slowly, surely, across the rope came an acrobat, pushing before him a wheelbarrow with another performer riding in it. And when they finally reached the safety of solid ground, the acrobat smiled at the man's amazement and said, Don't you think I can do it again? And the man said, Well, yes, I certainly believe you can do it again. And the acrobat put his question there again, and the answer again from the man was the same. And then the acrobat pointed at the wheelbarrow, and he said, Good, then get in, and I'll take you across. Are we going to be the kind of people that believe what the Bible says about our miraculous Savior and His kingdom? But we refuse to put it to to the test in our own life. Do we believe that he can do it again and again? And are we willing and ready to trust him and to go with him, to give him our lives, to jump in that wheelbarrow, giving control to our Lord and King? Brothers and sisters, let's let nothing get in the way of our trust of Jesus and of our pursuit of his ways of his true value, of his sacrifice for us, and of his glorious kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we indeed, God, if we did absolutely everything we could, we know we would still be unworthy servants in your kingdom. And we know it is only what your Son has done for us that gives us any opportunity 
to be known by you, to be loved by you, and to find salvation in you. And so we thank you for the treasure that we have in Christ, and we pray that we would not be casual in our pursuit of your kingdom. And we pray that by your Spirit you would draw us to you, that you would bring about in us the fullness of life, that fullness of love that brings out of us a life lived in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.